Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the events of the soul are probably the most important events in life. Uh, Psalm 88 is an inspired event of the dark night of the soul. It is the darkest of psalms and possibly one of the darkest passages in all of Scripture. There's no expressed relief within its stanzas and there's no resolve at the end. To which we have to ask, <laughs> why? Why did God want to immortalize this darkness or even more surprising, why would this psalm be written as a song for the choir master? And how could the temple musicians, that's the sons of Korah, how could they take such lyrics and then put them to music? And what use was this psalm for corporate worship of which it was written? See, Psalm 88 goes where most of us don't want to go. Psalm 88 really uh, goes where most of us don't want to admit even Christians go. We just want to be happy. <laughs> we just want a Christianity that makes us comfortable, that promises a relatively easy life, that gives formulas for success in family and finances, a Christianity that creates manageable troubles. But then God gives us Psalm 88. If you remember in the very first uh, week of the Psalms, uh, I said Psalms 1 and 2 are the introduction to the rest of the psalm book. And that there in that introduction, we find the aim that God has for us. Psalm 1, 1, first phrase, blessed is the man or woman. Psalm 2, 12, last phrase of that introduction, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I said the aim that God has for our lives is our blessedness, or I said even happiness. 
to which some of you understandably balked, balked at that word happiness. Because, because you know the distinction, you've heard that distinction, happiness depends upon happenings, that is circumstances, and we, and you know, we need something more substantial for our happiness, to anchor our happiness into than our circumstances. Or perhaps you balked because it sounds It sounded like God is all about us, as if we were the greatest good of the universe, when we all know that God is the greatest good. Well, the psalmist doesn't mean that in blessedness. I don't mean that in terms of blessedness. Psalm 88 is honest about life, and life can get really dark. And if our happiness is anchored to our circumstances, we will not be happy or blessed. And if our happiness is anchored on the false idea that we are the greatest good, then we will be perplexed and bitter when life gets really dark. So Psalm 88 shows us that happiness is only attainable when we anchor our lives to the bedrock of the one who is happiest, God. And he does this, this author reveals this masterfully as he interweaves two threads of honesty and of hope. So let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we need your help because we are all on different places of darkness, despair, trouble. This room is full of it, full of trouble some extremely dark and troubled today. And so we pray, Father, that you would do uh, again what we have, we, we, we even stated in our call to worship, and that is that you would fill our cups. Father, it continues to amaze us that uh, when the question is asked by the psalmist, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? You know, what, what do you want from us? What do you want us to do, Father? And all you simply say, and the psalmist says, Lift up your cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. That you want to glorify yourself again by showing that you are more than sufficient for our trouble and our turmoil. And so, Father, we lift up our cups and we'd ask that you would fill it, fill our cups with your salvation again today, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name who made it possible. Amen. Let's look at the first thread there, uh, the thread of honesty. Now, the first part of the sentence uh, that I'm going to make here, uh, probably most of you won't uh, need to be convinced of, but the second part, you may, it may cause you to pause. So here's the first part of my sentence. We live in a broken, fallen world full of despair. Now, I don't think many of you need to be convinced of that, um, of that reality. It doesn't take long to live Life to experience is brokenness. But perhaps you need to pause uh, on this one, this second part. So here's the first part. We live in a broken, fallen world full of despair, second part. And those in a covenantal relationship with God are not exempt from its darkness. Or in other words, more specifically, believers 
are not exempt from periods of significant darkness in their lives. I think we see this in the description of despair that the psalmist gives us. See, there there is no reason to think that this individual is not in a covenant relationship with God. The psalm starts with the covenant name, that would be the, in, our, in our English Bibles, the capital L-O-R-D. In our English version, that identifies that covenant name, Yahweh. So I'm going to use those, that name, Yahweh, uh, in, in these verses. Verse 1, O Yahweh, God of my salvation. Middle of verse 9, every day I call upon you, O Yahweh. Verse 13, but I, O Yahweh, cry to you. Verse 14, O Yahweh, why do you cast my soul away? And it's really that, that question there, that last question of verse 14, O Yahweh, why do you cast my soul away? It's right there in that question which makes this despair so great. See, it's not as if the psalmist is standing outside the covenant family looking in, wishing they could be part of of this relationship. No, this isn't an individual who rejected God and has now received the consequences of that rejection and now is calling God to save him. No, this is one of his own. Yahweh's own. The psalmist is one in whom God promises to be his God to to protect him, and to give him guidance. He is in a covenant relationship with God, at the God of the universe, and yet look at the darkness of his despair. Look at verse 3. For my soul is full of troubles. His soul, the very essence of his being, has been satiated with trouble. And so the first word I would use to describe this despair is confusion, confusion. He doesn't feel protected by God. Rather, he feels like God is his enemy. Look there, verse 7. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. See, this isn't a one-time event of trouble like waves on the beach, one wave after another. It's been of difficulty and trouble and trial and turmoil. Verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful, your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. See, he's using language of an evading force that's like a flood. <laughs> and we know what water does. This, this, almost like this impersonal force, it surrounds a structure and finds every vulnerable spot, every weak point, and it wreaks havoc. This is the language that the psalmist is using of how he's experiencing life, how he's experiencing God. See, what makes our dark times so difficult is this confusion. God doesn't feel like a friend. He feels like an enemy. Well, another word that we can use to describe this despair, uh, this despair is weariness, weariness, weariness of body and weariness of soul. He has, he has been in this troubled state for so long that life itself is ebbing away. 
look at what he says, second half of, uh, second half of verse 3. My life draws near to Sheol. The, the, the psalmist's despair is so great that he describes it as being proximate to death. See, there are a number of phrases in the Old Testament used to express the state of a person in death, after death. There's actually 11 different words that the Hebrew has to kind of try to get a handle on what happens after life. But it's interesting that none of the words are really that descriptive of the eternal state in terms of really what's going on there. It seems to be just this kind of blank that God has not yet revealed to his people yet. Uh, so there's 11 words, and of those 11, five of those are packed into verses 3 through 11. And I think he does this for us to feel the weight of his despair. See, what are we told to, to do today? If someone is preoccupied with death, that's a, that's a warning flag. That's a warning flag uh, that says that we need to be present in that person's life because they're close. They're close to death. I think that's what's going on here. See, the essential concept of the word sheol is the place of the dead and the nuance being on the place where speaking and laughing and praying to God just does not take place. Abaddon, uh, Abaddon uh, found in verse 11, occurs often in parallelism with uh, Sheol and thus are very similar, but it also has a little bit of a nuance in that it, it's a place of that in which the focus is on the physical body, the physical body actually undergoing decomposition, or in the New Testament we would call it corruption. And it's interesting because in Revelation chapter 9, uh, verse uh, 11 Abandon is, is personified as Satan, the cause of death, destruction, and corruption. Verse 5, we have the word grave, and grave is frequently used as a synonym of Sheol, but simply uh, it's, it's, a, it's the physical hole in the ground when we hear this word. It's what we see out there. We're going to go out there after this, and we're going to look over to the left there, and we've got the Oakdale uh, Memorial Gardens, a, a nice place, a nice word to say um, cemetery. There's the plants over there. What's being planted are bodies. Uh, we're to be thinking when we think of the word grave or another word pit of that place. Another Hebrew word is tatitat, which is considered the lowest part of the earth and, and, and is conceived as a place of departed spirits. We find that in verse 6, where we read the words, the regions, dark and deep. And then the last, Masak, it's focusing on darkness and is synonymous in verse 6 with the depths of the pits. Well, the sum total uh, is a desperate weariness where emphasis is on the physical question of whether or not he can go on. So verse 4, we read, I am counted among those who go down to the pits. I am a man who has no strength. And where he is in a pit physically, so he is in a pit emotionally. Physical and emotional weariness Another word to describe despair, if you already haven't been cheered up thus far, <clears throat> loneliness. 
loneliness. Verse 5, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember more. This phrase, one sets loose among the dead, uh, the image that we are to be having there is the image of a mass grave where out of necessities, bodies are simply piled up together and buried. And with that, there is this loss, lost and forgotten for all time. See, the living death that the psalmist has experienced is that feeling that life has passed him by. I mean, have you, have you felt that where you're, you're just kind of, you're living life, but you feel like life is just kind of passing you by. People are going on with their lives and you're just sitting in place in your desperate, in, in your despair, and it's, it's a lonely place. But what's even more lonely about this is that there's a sense that God has forgotten. The concept of remembering in the Old Testament is extremely important for God's people. So that Zechariah, the, the prophet, his name, Zechariah, means Yahweh remembers. And Zechariah, as a minor prophet, he, he, that very name, he, he uses that name, he comes in, he tells God's people there is hope in their, in their troubles, that hope was, but, but that hope wasn't on them remembering God in their troubles, but rather that God is going to remember him in their troubles, or remember them in their troubles. See, there is hope because God remembers. See, when we forget God, and we do that every time we sin, we forget God. When we forget God, our hope is that God will keep remembering us as his own. So when he writes second part of verse 5, like those whom you remember no more, he wonders, has God forgotten me? Loneliness. For if God has forgotten him, then in his, his hand of care and protection has been removed. So the last part of verse 5, it says, For they, those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. In other words, you're on your own. Loneliness. And then, last word. Abandoned, abandoned. Friends, verse 8, you've caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. But even worse, what do you do when your greatest ally abandons you? See, look at verse 18. You have caused my beloved to shun me. The greatest ally of one's life, the one who is most intimate with us, who knows our strengths and, their witnesses and our weaknesses, and they have left you. So the psalmist, as he reflects on his state, finds that his only friend is darkness. Remember the Chilean mine disaster that happened 12 years ago? Um, 33 miners working deep inside a mountain of Chile. It was a, 
um, copper, gold, and kind of other minerals that they were, they were down there excavating. They felt a, uh, they started beginning to feel a vibration, and then there was this explosion. Massive explosion. Passageways are filled up with a gritty dust cloud. When that settled, what they discovered is that the source of the explosion wasn't man-made, but rather it was a single block of stone as tall as a 45-story building had broken off from the rest of the mountain and had sealed the men inside the mine a half mile down. <laughs> Staring at that flat, smooth wall, Louis Urzua, the chief's, uh, the crew's uh, supervisor, thought as he was staring at that flat, smooth wall, it was like the stone that they put over Jesus' tomb. No access to food or water. Whatever food or water they had brought down for the day, that's all they had. So they had no access to food or water, no access to extra batteries to light their lamps. And the whole time, it took them 17 days to actually get a drill down there. For 17 days, they wondered, have we been abandoned? Took another 69 days to get them actually out of there. Wow. But that's darkness. That's hopelessness. And yet people are living that every single day. Honesty. An honest description of despair. Many who are in covenants with God, many have had to endure Psalm 88 is honest in another way, and that is in the way of the source of that despair, source of the despair. Look at the honesty, and I'm sure you already caught it as you heard it read. Verse 6, you have put me into the depths of the pit. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with your waves. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. And we see the same in verses 16 and 18. See, the psalmist recognizes that this pit of despair that, that is so dark and deep has to come from somewhere. And he knows his theology. God is sovereign. Now, Psalm 88 isn't an exhaustive uh, exhaustive on the source of despair in the world. It is not as if the Bible ignores kind of secondary causes. And we ought to address the causes of pain and suffering, the despair that we find here, you know, the spiritual causes and the psychological causes, the physical causes, the social causes, and so, so forth. But what the author of Psalm 88 is doing is he's getting at a real question in all of our minds when we're going through times of pain and suffering that results in despair. God, you could have prevented this. Or, God, you can do something about this, but you don't. See, look at the psalmist's persistence there in verse 1. I cry out day and night before you. Or verse 9. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, but I, O oh Lord, cry out to you in the morning. My prayer comes right before you. Psalm 88 is honest. 
It's an honest expression of our own theology. God is sovereign. And in this honesty, this is where we find our second thread of hope. Hope in our despair. Because God is sovereign, we can have hope. See, remember my thesis that I stated at the beginning is this. Happiness is only attainable when we anchor our lives to the bedrock of the one who is the happiest, and that is God. Can you imagine? Uh, can you imagine a life in which you had, you, you, could, you could get whatever you wanted? Can you imagine if you, if you were someone who had all the resources that you needed so that whatever your heart's desire was, you could have it, that you could just go out and get it? Can you imagine that? I mean, I mean, you, you got to admit, that'd be kind of cool, right? I mean, you'd be, don't you think you'd be happy if that was, the, that was you know, your, your, your experience? You know, I kind of look in on people who, you know, these billionaires, which you can't imagine having that kind of money, and they can do whatever they want at a, at a drop of a notice. You know, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to, you know, I can imagine that'd be kind of fun. I can get into that. <laughs> I mean, it seems like they'd be happy. Well, you know, the problem is, is that, no, they're finite, and the problem is that they're sinners, and the problem is that what we've discovered is that many times the very things we want is actually the curse from God. Uh, so, 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 but, but God is happy on this basis because He has all resources, because He is sovereign. Psalm 115 verse 3 says this simply, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. His pleasure is being worked out moment by moment. He's always happy. Difference between us and him, of course, he's infinite. He is also holy, and he is the one who is absolutely righteous and just. So everything that he pleases to do is actually absolutely right. But think about it. He is the happiest because he gets exactly what he wants. We get that. In a limited way, we understand what that means. He's never grumpy. He never wakes up one day going, oh, man, I, I, don't, ew, I didn't sleep very well last night. <laughs> he, he doesn't wake up and thought, oh, whoa, I didn't know that was going to be coming today. He, he never looks into your life and your response to something you did, that it, it, it surprised him. Uh, no, he's sovereign, and that's what gave the psalmist hope. And what gives us hope in our darkest period is that because God is sovereign and thus the happiest being, listen to this, first thing, he really does understand the deepest, darkest caverns of the human experience. He, he is never caught off guard by what you are going through. He is never confused or overwhelmed. See, the struggles of Psalm 88 with its precision and sensitivity to the detail of despair has an air of familiarity for us who have gone through the dark nights of the soul, and this psalm is tremendously comforting. He really understands. Thus, second thing, he hears with patience and mercy 
the most desperate cries of the human heart. And this is what the psalmist is banking on. See, remember how he starts. He starts this way, O Yahweh. He's appealing to God's character by using his covenantal name. See, God's people, when they used the covenantal name, Yahweh, they found great comfort in what it meant. It reminded them that their God is a God who pursued them, saved them, and made a promise to never leave them. Moses, you know, he was just hanging out in the wilderness. He was just doing his own thing. You know, he was just taking care of the sheep. And there was an attention giver that God needed to use, and that was there was this burning bush which in of itself is a little odd out there in the wilderness. But what was really odd about it, it was that it wouldn't burn up. And so this attention giver, he goes over to this bush, and it's there where then God speaks to him. And it's where there God discloses his plan. He says, Moses, you're going to lead my people out of their slavery. Uh, You're going to, I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to take them out. I'm going to call these people my people, and they're, they're going to be my people forever. In other words, I'm going to be their God. Well, Moses, you know, he, he anticipates a question that maybe his, uh, the people might have. Actually, I think it was really his question. It's kind of like any time you have a question that you want to ask somebody, but you're kind of embarrassed to ask it. So you say, well, I have a friend. <laughs> and so that's what he does here. He, he wants to know, he, you know, he just wants to know something. And, and here's the account. The account goes this way. Then Moses said to God, well, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, what's his name? What should I say to them? I think it's a reasonable question. I mean, the Israelites want to know, Moses wants to know just who this God is. What is he capable of? What is he made of? Does he have what it will take to fulfill his promises? So God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's Yahweh. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am, has sent me to you. Well, that gets at his ability. That is, the God who was and is and will be is their God. His name expresses his self-existence. He has no cause. He's not dependent on anyone. As a matter of fact, Everyone and everything is dependent upon him. That's who you want on your side when you're going through troubles and difficulties. But is he good? But is he good? Well, God does what he said he promised. He brings uh, his people out. He calls the people out. He brings them out. He redeems them from Egypt. They're in in the wilderness. He's doing all kinds of things to show his power and to show that he loves them. He provides for them in in the wilderness, and they do a foolish thing. They rebel against God. We call that the worshiping of the golden uh, golden calf. We saw that when you know about that story. And yet, in, in that moment, Moses intercedes on behalf of God's people for that rebellion, and God forgives and so it's in, it's, it's in this, it's this response that Moses now needs to know, whoa, whoa, who, who are you? That you would forgive such rebellion in, in the face of all the goodness that you have shown these people and they've rebelled against you. Who are you that you would forgive them? And so Moses needs to know what kind of God forgives such rebellion. 
is he really that good? So God graciously tells Moses that he will show him the essence of his goodness, an essence that is found in the covenantal name Yahweh. And so again, I'll read you the account. And so God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, Moses, and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And this is what he proclaimed when he said Yahweh. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so we pick it up. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So the essence of his goodness is found in that God, the God who was, the God who is, the God who will be, uses his sovereign position, his self-existence over the universe to be gracious and merciful. Thus, it is not surprising that the psalmist in his despair appeals to the covenantal name and adds those four words there in, back there in verse 1 of chapter 8. O Yahweh, God of my salvation. The psalmist in the midst of his tribulation cries out to faith in the God who is not only to save, who is not only able to save, but desires to save him. What's he doing? He's anchoring himself to his covenantal relationship with the living God of the universe because his experience of despair feels like incessant waves. And yes, that is the picture that we're supposed to be having. We're a picture of an individual on a rock that is getting battered by the waves and wondering if they're going to be able to hold on anymore. And so that battered individual says, I don't think I'm going to be able. I am not going to be able. I'm anchoring myself now to the bedrock of my God. What I cannot do, hold on, I can believe he will hold on for me. His only hope is that God will hold on to him. And so his persistent prayer is the result of knowing that God is the one who hears with patience and mercy the most desperate cries of the human heart. Happiness is only attainable when we anchor our lives to the bedrock of the only one who is happy, the one who is happiest, sorry, God. Thirdly, the psalmist's hope in God's sovereignty and thus our hope is that ongoing despair is not a failure of the plan. It is the plan. It is the plan. The honesty of the psalm demands that we not minimize people's despair. We're not here saying it's not that big of a deal. Oh yeah, it's, it's a big deal. The dark place of the soul the people are going through, it's a big deal. And we ought not to minimize it. And this psalm says don't ever minimize it. But recognize in all of its darkness, the honesty of the psalm also provides hope in that there is a purpose. 
See, think of it in kind of a broader way that we're all experiencing here today, and that is we live in a world that has been and continues to be devastated by sin. The signs are, are everywhere around us. Even creation itself is said to groan, waiting for the redemption, Romans uh, chapter 8. And you've got to ask the question, is this kind of a mistake, the way God did this? You know, because wouldn't it have been better and easier and more efficient for us to be ushered into eternity the moment we came to believe in Jesus Christ? Why couldn't we have had it that way? <laughs> You know, no more troubles, no more difficulties, no more hassles, no more need for security devices, no more need for medicines. The list goes on. No, it's not a mistake. Our continued presence in this groaning place is not a failure of the plan, it is the plan. John chapter 12, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. We celebrate that entrance called Palm Sunday. On that day, he says something curious to his disciples. Short phrase, now is my soul troubled. Literally, it is now there is turmoil in my soul. Jesus has turmoil of the soul, and the source of his turmoil is that we discover, if you look at the context there in John 12, he's actually talking about walking in the will of the Father. And matter of fact, the will of his Father is for him to go into a deeper, darker place, so deep that as he's anticipating it, the physical and emotional toil causes him to sweat tears of blood, psychological, uh, physiological, sorry, reaction to the emotional state that he finds himself there in the garden. His closest allies eventually abandon him. Peter, one of the closest of, of the three, he distances himself from the horror of being associated with him and denied he even knew Jesus three times. It was the will of the Father that his, Jesus' soul, be satiated with trouble, that his life be set loose among the dead, that he be cut off from the Father's loving hand, and that he experience the dark deeps, uh, deeps of despair, and that the wrath of God sweep over him. It was the plan. Now you go back to Psalm 88. And the questions the psalmist raise, verses 10 through 12, the psalmist asks, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in abandon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Well, the answer in the psalmist's day to those questions was, no. None of that happened on his historical side of the cross. The psalmist was praying for rescue in life because it was only in life that any of that happened. But on this historical side of the cross... Because the despair of the son was the plan, the answer to all those questions is yes. Yes in Jesus. So that do you work wonders for the dead? Oh, yes, I do. 
I take dead people and make them alive. I take dead spiritually people and make them alive again. Oh, yes, I do. I'm going to take the dead, and they're going to physically rise one day. Do, you, do the departed rise up to praise you? Oh, yes. We go into the presence of God himself at the point of death, and we give him praise. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm resting on the steadfast love of God as I go, to, go into the grave. Or your faithfulness in abandon? Oh, yeah, faithfulness. I trust in God's faithfulness. Are your wonders known in the darkest? Oh, yeah, they are. That place is a place where we marvel at the wonders of God. Or is your righteousness in the land of forgiveness? Absolutely. I'm clothed in his righteousness. Yes. That was the plan. So you can find hope in God's sovereignty that your despair that you're in is not a failure. It's not a failure of the plan. It is the plan. And so that in a lesser way but a redemptive way, even the pain and suffering of your soul, it's doing something for you. It is bringing clarity into your life. Kayim Potok, I don't know if you know he, he's, his, his, this author, he, in his novel, The Chosen, uh, it tells of a story of a boy growing up in Brooklyn, New York, named the boy's Danny. Danny is a strict um, Hasidic Jew. Danny's father is the leader of the Hasidic community, and he raises his son in relative silence. He never, he never speaks to him directly except when they study the Torah together. So Danny is, is understandably hurt and confused, this character of the book. He cannot understand why his father is so distant and afflicts him with so much pain. And so what Potok is doing here is he's exploring uh, suffering and, uh, and he's doing that through the character that, uh, that of, of Danny. And Danny is discovering, Danny discovers something and that is he discovers that his Suffering, the experience actually has some clarifying outcomes. Danny shares this, uh, Potok writes for, of course, the character. One learns of the pain of others by suffering one's own pain, by turning inside oneself, by finding one's own soul. And it is important to know pain. It destroys our self-pride, our arrogance, and our indifference towards others. And it makes us aware of how frail and tiny we are and how much we must depend upon the master of the universe. Well, that's a secular author who got it. Happiness is only attainable when we anchor our lives to the bedrock of the one who is the happiest in God. And here's what's remarkable. The Christ who went into the deepest and darkest place on behalf of humanity is risen to be with you in your turmoil. So Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Clarity. It's the plan. Twelve Strong is a movie that came out in 2018. It tells the story of the first special forces teams that were deployed in Afghanistan after 9-11. 
Under the leadership of a new captain who had never been in, ca in combat, his team of 12 must work with an Afghan warlord, General Dostum, to take down a city held by the Taliban in the northern regions of Afghanistan. And there's a moment where General Dostum has a frank conversation with the captain. When the captain understandably uh, is troubled at discovering that they are fighting tanks with horses, Something he wasn't aware of, something that Dostum didn't tell him was going to be happening until they were in the battle itself. So the captain says, you have an obligation to tell me everything you know. To which General Dostum replies, you don't have a stomach for everything I know. You will not win here because you are not honest with yourselves, yourself. You expect victory without blood. Well, the captain angrily snaps back, I expect you to share the strategic information with us. Otherwise, what are we doing here? And General Dostum looks him in the eye. Your anger comes from your fear because you live in a place where life looks better than afterlife. That's not this place. Here, Taliban kills everything you live for. Your mission will fail because you fear death. Mullah Razan's men, the Taliban, they welcome it because they believe there is something better waiting for them in heaven. Watching this movie, really only for entertainment value. <laughs> and it's a theological weight comes down and I'm convicted. You fear because you live in a place where life looks better than afterlife. See, we need to be honest with ourselves. Psalm 88 confronts us with the fact that God is not after what we are after. If God were exercising his awesome power to deliver us to our personal satisfaction and pleasure in this life, then Psalm 88 is a total embarrassment embarrassing testament to his complete failure. No, Psalm 88 calls us to be honest with ourselves and for many of us to confess humbly that we tend to live self-absorbed lives, that many of us have complained and whined and felt like we were being singled out by God with troubles that are one-tenth of the expression of despair found here in Psalm 88. We need to humbly confess that we think a comfortable life is a blessed life, that we want situations and relationships in the surrounding creation to provide the pleasure that we seek, and we are disappointed, discouraged, and angry with God when he doesn't deliver. But God is, in fact, working for our happiness and satisfaction. And there are times when he uses the deep, dark nights of the soul to show us that there is someone better for us than everything else this world has to offer. So give him praise. Give him thanks today. God is completing his work of redemption in us by keeping us in the middle of all the harsh realities of the fall. Our troubles are the workroom in which we learn to anchor our lives to the bedrock of the one who is the happiest, God. Father, we're tired. <laughs> we thank you that you never tire. You never sleep nor slumber. 
There's never a bad day for you. And we can come to you. Father, we are thankful that as we take this meal here, this Lord's Supper, we are thankful, Father, that it was the plan for your Son to take our sins in his body, to go to the deepest and darkest place that no one else could or ever would go on our behalf. It was the plan. That he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. So, Father, as we take this bread and as we take this cup, we are reminded of the deep, dark despair that he went on our behalf, of the wrath that was poured out upon him, uh, of the fact that your hand was taken away from him, that you forgot him for a moment because of our sin in order that you would remember us for all of eternity. And so, Father, as we take this bread, we are thankful for him. We are thankful for the blood that he shed, the new covenant that we have. We can use that new covenant name because we are now in covenant with you. Uh, The God who has redeemed us, protects us, will lead us, will counsel us, and will bring us home one day. So we thank you, Father. We honor you as we take this bread and cup. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.